and welcome to this week's episode of I Was Going To Podcast. This week's guest is owner and managing director of PLZ Soccer and sports pundit Peter Martin. Peter, welcome to the show. How have you found this unusual time during COVID to keep yourself busy? And I'm sure you've kept yourself very busy over that period of time, but it's been very strange. Very strange. And I'm delighted that uh, both yourself and Callum invited me onto the podcast. It's a, it's a situation where the first thing that strikes you is the fact that some businesses, some individuals, especially in my field, might lose their job. Um, and that's the worry of the whole thing. So once it started, I was in a fortunate position because one of the guys who works for us, he had worked down south in London. He knew the enormity of what was coming. The two of us sat down, we discussed it for our company, and we decided basically to get the the technology into all our pundits' houses so that we could actually stay safe, stay in our house, and still broadcast the show. So once lockdown kicked in, from there, it was just basically me using every bit of experience, every contact that I had, and we had something like 65 to 70 guests on, and basically we chat about football over the last four months I mean it's not as if there's not been anything to chat about because <laughs> Scottish Scottish football is the only industry where we're trying to save lives but we decide to kick each other where it hurts um, and, and start a fight you know so so over that period it was worrying yes would we survive that's the big question as far as our company is concerned and then of course try and keep people entertained and, and, and that's what we've managed to do so far God willing it, it long may it continue The developments at Aberdeen have thrown a huge curveball, you know, to the whole game. I heard at the weekend somebody saying that, you know, they can't social distance in the pub, but they can social distance in the park when they're playing Rangers. Well, absolutely. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but you'll remember a time where if you lost a game to Aberdeen or you lost a game to Rangers or you lost a game to Celtic, you wouldn't go out at the weekend. You'd be, you know, I, I worked with Derek Johnson for so long at Radio Clyde. He said if they lost a game to Celtic, he, the only time he contemplated coming out was to get in the car to go back to training on the Monday. So it's a nightmare. And, and the eight players have a problem. Do we continually kick them? Well, you know, they're getting a fair kicking right now, and rightly so, because what they didn't realise was the implications are for the whole of Scottish football and and obviously the industry that survives around it as well. So I I think they got it wrong. They realised the error of their ways. They've tried to make excuses here and there for it, which I think is not the right way to go down. They should All eight boys should have just said, look, we made a mistake. We're really sorry. End of story. Um, or if they really wanted to get off with it, why didn't they just say they were going into the pub to test their eyesight to make sure it was okay? Because apparently, <laughs> apparently, that get, apparently that gets you off with things, you know? It gets worse if the night goes on, do it? <laughs> Peter, you mentioned there about you know the fans. We were reading an article that you were saying that you were missing attending football games. So how do you feel about the current situation with no fans in the ground? Well, it doesn't work. It's as simple as that. It's an eerie silence. You can hear the manager shouting at the players. You can hear the players shouting "Man on!" You can, uh, you know, you just feel great sympathy for the for the fans for not being able to go to the game. Rather worryingly, I think uh, you know I've been speaking to a number of people involved in the medical profession 
profession. I was speaking to a virologist at the weekend who said we're being overly optimistic about getting fans back into the ground at any time soon and in any great numbers. It's fine hearing clubs and I understand why they're doing it because financially they're in deep trouble but it's fine saying 10,000 fans will come in and they'll all be spaced across the, the, the seats in the stadium safely but you cannot legislate for those 10,000 fans coming up to the ground. What they're doing on the way up there, you know, when they start singing, are they propelling, you know, droplets of water into the air? Can you guarantee safety? So there's all sorts of problems that for me personally, when I'm watching it in the ground, it's strange. It's amazing now how when Jockstein said football without fans is nothing, it's amazing how true that statement is because the players don't react. There's no real feeling and sense of urgency. If there's two minutes to go, there's two minutes to go. Sometimes fans can lift you to a greater height. Sometimes players can respond to the crowd and, you know, that whole burst of adrenaline, none of that is there at the moment. Yeah, I agree. Peter, there's a case, I was thinking about this the other day, that I, I know that uh, Rangers have got Rangers TV and Celtic get Celtic TV, but under the circumstances, I wondered if, if there was a sort of question that the SPFL should be televising every game. Well, realistically, I mean, it's fraught with danger because... Quite simply, Sky have paid a considerable amount of money and that is the money that goes to the clubs. So Sky have put in for the next six years a huge amount of money that they have exclusive coverage. So that money goes to the clubs. Where we are different from English football, and this is where the crux of the matter as far as getting revenue in is, English football clubs are not relying on fans coming through the door. They could survive forever and a day after a £1 billion deal that's been sold to China, that's been sold to Europe. Everybody in America, you know, wants their feed of English football. Scottish football is a different kettle of fish. We uh, rely on the supporters coming in. We also rely on the supporters buying merchandise. £7 million to Rangers and Celtic is a huge amount of money in merchandise sales, possibly more once they do deals with Castor and they do the deals with Adidas, but it's a huge amount of money. The fans buying the strips is a huge amount of money. And then over and above that, when they come in and they buy their hot dogs or their hamburgers or the coat and then there's the hospitality attached to it all of that money is crucial to Scottish football it's not as crucial to English football and 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 right now you cannot suddenly dilute the huge amount of money that Sky is giving to our game by saying we're just going to televise everything so we can get extra money in they've got to honour the contracts that they signed and they've got to be fair to them because remember the SPFL and I've got you know at times I have I look upon them with great disdain this is a group of people, and I'm talking about the, the SPFL, are the chief executives and the chairman who form that SPFL board. They sold everybody down the river with that Satanta deal, um, which actually fell flat in its face. They turned their back on Sky Sports and then literally went out with the begging bowl to ask them to save them. You know, I wouldn't look to the SPFL for any great leadership, and it's been highlighted over the last four months, but you must be fair to the person who's paying the biggest amount of money. An interesting point, you go back to Satanta, because I mentioned that umpteen times, and I'm now 56 and old enough to remember it there's an awful lot of people that don't remember that and a lot of people think the likes of Rangers or whatever overspent but they didn't it was actually they had a dependency their expectation was this Sky deal was going to come in yeah well we, we've we've also been involved in, in in contract negotiations to buy you know commentary rights before as well um, as PLZ Soccer and when I was at Radio Clyde I knew how difficult it was to negotiate radio rights with them they made the mistake with Satanta they then get into a 
situation later on, only in the last five years, where suddenly BT Sport comes to the fore and BT Sport comes into the mix and then you have Sky and BT against each other. But the, the, the difficulty is what the SPFL do and they don't do it well is they, they play them off against each other because they played me off against the BBC and everybody else who was potentially buying uh, contract rights but they play them off in such a way that they think they can then cajole the best price out of them and then BT Sport didn't offer enough money and it's not about quality and it's not about who's got the best pundits and it's not about who's got the best service and who, have, who gives you the best programme all they care about is the money so when I heard BT Sport bleating on about how great this pundit was and that pundit was they didn't pay enough money I've had times when Radio Clyde had the best team ever and we could have beaten the BBC at commentary but we didn't pay enough money so we didn't get it so we get blown out the water and that is business economics here so BT Sport didn't pay enough money they get bombed out A really interesting point there just to continue on that the disparity between Scottish football and English football Peter uh, do you think it is I read the the, the article where you said that that Scottish football is unfairly reported do you still think that that is the case it's huge between England and Scotland it's huge between England and the rest of Europe now I don't know about you I, I would have said that I would have said they get an unfair rap as far as English football ball is concerned. Um, almost certainly 100%. But I, I don't care. I don't need Scottish football to be justified by what England thinks. It doesn't bother me. I'm not interested in it. And I don't think we should look for vindication on how we operate as a country in our football by getting plaudits from English people. You could write on the back of a stamp the knowledge some of the English people have about Scottish football. We have to be positive about our game. We have to gloss it up and we have to try and market it and sell it better. We don't do that and we still don't do it to this, to this day because there are too many people bickering and backstabbing each other. So that's why we are in a situation where we're wondering where we go next. English football is so powerful that quite simply UEFA now has a major problem because clubs, and I include the likes of Real Madrid and Barcelona and Bayern Munich, they are looking and thinking, yes, we would like a Super League where we could just break away and have 16 teams play each other all the time because they're worried that English football is going to dominate for years to come because they can't match them for spending. It's interesting actually um, Peter from my perspective I look at that and I think to myself it's actually that just a Scottish trait. We're not good at giving ourselves a pat on the back. They're not good at self-promotion. So does that permeate do you think into the Scottish football scene where actually we have got a really good product it is exciting. You know there's great games to watch but we don't actually promote that enough. Well we don't have people who, who can market it properly. We don't have people who actually they won't pay for somebody to go out and say right let's get this game and really push it out there let's put the gloss on it now I don't know about you but I wouldn't sit in on a Sunday afternoon and watch West Brom versus Aston Villa give me peace <laughs> but the way they portray it you'd think it was the best game ever to look forward to must watch it you know there's the goal mouth action there's the gloss of the player up front putting in a tackle there's a goal from 35 yards what are we doing we're too busy bickering over each other about who's getting some, some amount of money who should stay in the league should it be called, you know, who's on a WhatsApp group relaying WhatsApp messages to somebody else? You know, that's what we're all about. We're all about starting a fight in the middle of a field on our own and then see who's left standing at the end of it. That's really good for a promotion, all of that stuff. <laughs> Fantastic. That's got that, that, I've just summed up the Scottish mentality. <laughs> Talking about that and having a square go in a playground. You were educated in Scotland, uh, Peter. How did you find your educational experience? 
I loved it. I loved school. Um, I absolutely loved the area I was brought up in. I, I left at an early age and I came back uh, later on. I would have stayed in Edinburgh for the rest of my life if I had the choice. Um, but I came back here because, uh, you know, I was uh, offered a job at STV when I was younger and I couldn't knock it back. But my brother said to me, don't come back. Don't come back to the west of Scotland. They will slaughter you. They will make up stories about you. Uh, they will just, just poison. He said, go down to London. Do it. Do anything but don't come back to the West. And I I looked at it and I thought, you know, I'm going to come back. I'd spent 12 years in Edinburgh, couldn't knock back the job. And I think it took a week. And I think, you know, one particular magazine had slaughtered me. And and I, not that it bothered me, it didn't bother me. I mean, at the end of the day, I laugh about it all. But the, the West of Scotland has a particular sectarian problem. The East, for me, I enjoyed Edinburgh. I thought it was a wonderful city. And it's less, I'm not saying there's not bigotry, sectarianism, racism in Edinburgh. There is. It's just not as, it's not as vitriolic as it is through here. So, you know, I didn't, I enjoyed being back. I loved the area. I loved the school I was brought up in. And uh, I've still got, my, I've still got the same five mates I had when I was five. Good, very good. So when you were at school then, did you, did you aspire to be a football or a sports journalist? You know, because of, did I really, did I really know what I wanted to do? Absolutely. You know, because I remember driving with um, my mother or going past STV when I was very, very young. And I said, I'm going to work there one day. And she said, what are you going to do? And I said, I haven't got a clue, <laughs> but I'm going to work there. Um, I, you know, so I was always into football. I absolutely loved it. But I was brought up in a family where we didn't mix religion with football. You know, my, amazingly you know because my mum was the only parent in the house um she you know basically brought me up she loved football um she followed celtic everywhere and she said to me there are two teams on the park always appreciate the other team and you know i went to football we would i couldn't tell you um one rebel song or anything from that type of background that some people not that I'm criticising them they have their own way of supporting a team we supported Celtic because that was the way we were brought up Um, but we never mixed it with religion the next day and I could hand on heart say that you know there was times when my mum said I'm going to take you to see this team this team that I'm taking you to see would dominate Scottish football if it wasn't for Celtic and we went to see Hibs uh, and the great team that Hibs had with Brownlee with Shadler with Stanton um, with Jim O'Rourke and Alan Gordon so I had an early education into that I used to when I was a younger boy to earn money at DJ and I used to DJ for David Cooper he ran a sports club and I would DJ for it you know and David Cooper gave me 20 quid over and above my wage and I thought he's alright by me never mind his left never mind his left foot he's given me an extra 20 quid you know I love David Cooper Um, but uh, no we, we appreciated teams on the park you know my my other brother's a, a Motherwell fan it's just it's in our blood but it's not in our blood with religion it never mixed and, and and from that early age did you get the encouragement of your family and friends around about you that was it's quite unusual to, you know to, to go into the kind of niche career that you're going into you know it's such an early age so what was the encouragement like from that early day well I, I think the encouragement you know from everybody I mean we we grew up in a family there's 10 of us I've got seven sisters and two brothers you know we were brought up to actually graft, you know, so grafting uh, to, to keep the family going living in a three-bedroom council house. Everybody chipped in. I had a paper round. You know, I, I also went out and, and DJed when I was at high school to earn money. Um, and we, we all chipped in with our money. So we, we were encouraged to try and load the bases. That's what my mum used to say. Load the bases so that you've got so many talents that you can get a job, but you can fall back on something else. Um, so that was the case for me. I went to live uh, over in America, in New York, and I was going to go to university there. And my family just thought, you know, 
come back, you know, the, the lure of the family and missing out possibly in my mum's last year. She always, she always used to say to me, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'll die soon. Don't, you don't want to be away. <laughs> you know, she, she, she said that for about 20 years. <laughs> so she, she, black, she blackmailed me into coming back to, uh, she blackmailed me into coming back to Scotland. But listen, um, I wouldn't change it for the world. I love the country. Uh, so there was always encouragement. I always knew what I wanted to do. And uh, along the way, eventually, I, I, I got into journalism. But I'm glad I took the route that I did, which was through Radio Borders in Gala Shields. I did rugby for two years and did the football show in there as well, and then moved up to Edinburgh. And I, and I, and I made my name in Edinburgh, you know, slowly but surely through Radio Forth. Peter, you said you, you were glad that you went into Radio Borders as opposed to natural journalism, just writing in a press or whatever, that, that, that yeah. form of media. Why was that? Why was it you preferred the radio side of things? Well, because I, I felt as if I had a, a better grounding as far as being able to speak fluently, as far as you know, the knowledge of the game. I had good knowledge of it. I played it regularly anyway, you know, so a lot of my, my best friend was John Robertson at Hearts, you know, so I, you know, I would play football with professionals quite a lot of the times as well as, you know, playing football at my own level. Um, but when I went to Radio Borders, I mean, the first time I actually was supposed to go to Napier University in 1983, there were 650 people in for 30 places. You've got to understand this was at the heart of Margaret Thatcher's Britain. Yeah. So it was di- it was difficult, and there and there wasn't at that time six or seven other universities doing journalism. You couldn't go and do a media course at the University of Glasgow. There wasn't there wasn't a course saying media studies or whatever. It was a very limited amount of people getting in uh, to places. So from my point of view, I get sidetracked um, into other careers, but I always knew I was going to do it. And then slowly but surely, you know, the opportunity to come up and do the the job. By the time I got to Radio Borders for two years there, I thoroughly enjoyed it because the people who worked at Radio Borders were like a family. They were really kind. They were good people. Um, the, there was a learning curve for me. And then by the time I got to Radio 4, I mean, I had a great news editor. He wanted me to do the... I read the news. I was the sports editor. He wanted me to do news as well. Um, and and he, he just... He gave me a good grounding and, and taught me a lot of things in a practical sense. There are great journalists who um, go through the university course and come out of it and, you know, go on to become really good journalists there are great journalists who didn't go to university and learn on their on the ground you know the practicalities of it i'm glad i did that because i managed to get as many skills as i possibly could from editing from writing from commentating from presenting you know so i had all those skills and it was really crafted by my news editor at radio 4 david johnson i just i loved him and i thought he was he was absolutely fantastic he was the only man i know that taught me how to swear because because <laughs> he was the most he was he, he just he was the most polite person ever but he swore like a tripper you know so he was really funny I don't know about you but in the west of Scotland if I even thought about a sweary word I would have been grounded for weeks um, so but I enjoyed it and, and Radio Forth was the happiest time I've ever had in, in my life in broadcasting it was a great place to work you then moved on and fulfilled your prophecy your mum when you went to Scottish television and joined the Scots sport can you tell us about that that's obviously a big transition from radio into television how did that work for you well it was great because um, Mark Smith who was at STV phoned us and said look 
would you come through and work for Scott Sport in extra time? And, you know, apart from my brother's wisdom on it, I decided, yep, I'm going to go. I can't turn it down. Um, and when I was through there, they, they had life, you know, they had live football, they had highlights in football. I entered the STV building and, uh, you know, I looked about and I thought, oh, I'm out of my depth here. I mean, am I, am I really going to survive here? And after a week, you know, nobody helps you. This is the difference, you know, from the point of view of where I am now and the company that I have to joining STV after a week I thought wow I wonder if I'm good enough to be here can I survive um, and you know over a short period of time you have to swim rather than sink and you graft and you suck up as much knowledge as you possibly can and you don't say there's no demarcation in my mind you do not say I can't do that I won't do that I, I embraced everything because I wanted to make sure that I was hopefully going to be difficult to get rid of because I had skills that were crucial to people in lots of areas and I embraced it a lovely group of people you know a little bit more cutthroat television than uh, uh, than what I'd experienced at Radio Four. That was probably the the most difficult part. Was television is is a mix of people with egos and people who some people who just want to be on television for being on television so they can get noticed in Tesco. You know that's a dangerous breed. I have to that tell you. Um, you know, so, 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 so was that the same time as Jerry McNee or was it Archie yeah, McPherson? Was it Scott No, Archie was still at the BBC. It was Jerry McNee who was there. It was Jim White. Um, it was Jim Delahun. Um, and a great bunch of people in behind there as well you know it saddens me because at that time STV made programs and they made good programs and they had the most of the talent and all the talent you see operating either behind the scenes or up front at um, you know Sky and BBC to extent as well all of this good Scottish talent that eventually went to the the satellite channels they all came from and had their grounding at STV there's a lot of talent that disappeared you, you, you were speaking interestingly you said you didn't want to swear in the west coast but there was a lot of swearing on Scott Sport like squaff squaff in yes. the football and a scrimmage in the, in the middle of the park well the, the, I mean the great thing about it is if you're a commentator you've got to be able to describe uh, you know what you're watching on radio I paint pitch on television the commentary is different because you have to tell them something that their eye can't see so there was a different kind of research to it but yeah I mean Archie is was a legend before him um, you know synonymous with STV was was Arthur Montford and the key to it all and this is where I really pride myself on it is Arthur could speak in front of a camera if the autocue collapsed if the autocue broke down Arthur was a consummate professional. He could still talk about the game, about what was coming up. You know, it's very easy. You two guys are, are chatting and we're chatting as if the three of us are in a pub. When you're in a constructed television programme which is running to time codes, which has little packages in it, which has a game coming up that lasts seven minutes and then there's three minutes allocated to discussion on that game it's all very time coordinated so you know and if the auto cue goes down in a live show boy are you in trouble if you don't know what to say but Arthur was the consummate professional he could do that so picking up in things like that picking up in commentary reporting live from grounds all of those things were invaluable to me in the in the days at STV and I thoroughly enjoyed it talking about good time management sorry Callum good time management uh, being on Zoom we've got 8 minutes and 33 seconds to go so <laughs> see <laughs> the, 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 true, the true professionals that we are here. Peter, you, you managed to career transition between sports journalism and to the punditry that you're now in. How did you do that? Why did you do that? 
Well, um, on the programme on Super Scoreboard, um, there was a situation. I mean, I've always been opinionated about it. I knew I could write. I knew I could write a column. So I started working for the Evening Times and I wrote a column for five years. And Jerry McNee and Davy Proven, who I had a lot of respect for, said to me, listen, if you're going to write a newspaper column, make sure you've got something to say. Make sure it's opinionated. And make sure if you're criticising somebody, you can face them the next day and stand up for what you believe you've written. So I did that. I lost a few friends along the way because you have to be hard hitting but I pride myself in, in doing that for that period of time and I was also one of those people that the way the thing developed at Radio Clyde I was able to go out and be a reporter and also offer opinion on games and then you know from that comes commentary but then eventually I was the host but I decided to be a different style of host you know if you go on and you you have various pundits who start saying things as if everything that comes out of their mouth is gospel you know the game's a bogey every now and then you need to take the baseball bat out and batter them um, so you know like it or lump it it suddenly created an avenue for me and uh, you know I like to think that I'm I'm fair about it certainly from the from the commentary pit, you know, point of view lots of people can look back over the commentary and see I get excited whether it's a, a Nice Sterling goal a Dunfermline goal a Wraith Rovers in the Olympic Stadium or a Celtic or a Rangers or a Scotland goal in, in the case of the, the James McFadden in, in Paris but you know it's I, I like the fact that it's I've been able to actually you know cultivate the, the punditry as well because that's something I really enjoy So you're obviously a really busy man um, do you incorporate a daily routine to make sure that you manage your health and, and well-being? Well um Amazingly, um, before COVID, a lot of the ex-footballers, we all get together on a Wednesday and a Friday morning at half past nine and we play five asides. Uh, so that was six asides, actually. So the likes of, uh, you know, when they're out of it, we always say it's the gathering of the people who are out of a job or have been sacked. You know, one morning I turned up and there was Chris Sutton, there was Neil Lennon, Paul Hartley was there, uh, Alec Ray was there, James McFadden, uh, they were all there. And I looked around and I said to my mate, I says, God, if Ian McCall hadn't turned up, I'd be a last pick uh, so it, you know it was that kind of banter you know McCoy's would be there the banter sensational and I still play 11s and I've you know I think I've I've been uh, able to say I've, I've completed four marathons uh, and I like running um, but um, what about Mars yeah. bars Peter oh listen I could do a Mars bar in as well listen in, 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 our, in our family by the way you had to hide your Mars bar because there was nine other people that would steal it from you yeah I love I love playing the, the game and I love uh, staying energetic with it but listen the whole thing can consume you now with uh, what you've got to try and do when you're running your own company just on that, uh, you've obviously been inspired by a lot of characters within Scots sport and footballers, etc. But from a motivational books perspective, do you have a favourite motivational book, an autobiography on footballers? Or? Um, well, I loved Andrea Pirlo. Um, I liked his book. Um, I like reading from all sports. I'm a big tennis fan. Ruffy and I play doubles together. Mm -hmm. um, and I loved um, Andre Agassi's book, Open, which is basically, you know, you're talking about, did anybody encourage you? I mean, Andre Agassi hated tennis because his dad relentlessly forced him down a particular route. It was good to read Pep Guardiola's book because you get an insight into someone who was heavily influenced by Johan Cruyff and the Dutch philosophy, um, played in the dream team that Cruyff managed uh, when they won the European Cup at Wembley, and then eventually takes all of the the blueprint of Cruyff and his, his ethos and the way he wanted football played, and goes on to you know to manage Barcelona into one of the greatest teams I've ever ever witnessed um, in European finals. You know, so yeah, I mean, lots of uh, 
lots of books like that I can read. I'm heavily into politics as well, you know. I, I, I read a lot of books like, uh, you know, like that, uh, especially American politics, which, as you know, is <laughs> filled with madness at the moment. <laughs> Guys, um, I think we should do a quick fire round, if you're okay with that. Fire so, away. Um, where is your motivation to succeed emanated from? It's the fear of failure. It's the fear of, uh, you know, every one of us in journalism will always be in a situation where you will get sacked or you will be made redundant. You will lose your job because somebody thinks you're not good enough. You've got to still get up and take the punches. It's like Muhammad Ali. You will eventually get a sucker punch along the way. You've got to get back up and fight and prove people wrong. Never give in. Do you consciously set visible personal goals? Pardon the pun. Personal goals for me um, now with the company I have is I have a duty to try and help the journalists who work for us, for the pundits who work for us to say, this is how you become better. Uh, you know, Paul Cooney at Radio Clyde did it with me. David Johnson at Radio 4 did it with me. Um, uh, and it's a, it's a need to actually impart my knowledge onto people to try and help them. I always tell everybody here, look, load the bases just as I was taught. Get as many skills as possible so you can go on to a better job, earn more money. But remember when you go to work, everybody that comes to work for us, we try to the best of our ability to make sure they, they enjoy being here, have a good bit of fun and go home and not feel as if it's a grind to come in here the next day. Just on that then, the best piece of advice that you've had and the best piece of advice that you would give to budding journalists? Well, the best piece of advice I would give to budding journalists is make sure you have contacts. You can write the most wonderful words in the world, <laughs> but if nobody answers the phone to you, you haven't got the story. So you've got to get the contacts. You must chase the stories. You must not be offended by someone saying, no, I don't want to talk to you. Um, you know, in sports, somebody, if they don't want to do an interview, there's nothing I can do about it. You know, if they don't want to sit down with you, that's fine. You've got to be as fair as you can, as balanced as you can. You cannot allow yourself to uh, lose impartiality. The minute you become a flag waver for your team, and there are a few in this industry, I think you'll lose credibility. So that's the that's the, the best bit of advice I could give anybody in journalist. Best bit of advice that I've been taught, especially uh, with my brothers who used to sing, you're only as good as your last gig. <laughs> Do you recognise yourself as being successful? And if not, when will that be? I recognise myself as being successful because my wife and I tried for long enough and we wanted a kid. We've got a lovely 10-year-old daughter and I would say to anyone in life, you are not judged by the success of a job. You are judged by the success in learning what life's all about. Having a family and being having lots of friends who still remain your friends is the key to it all. Don't live to work. Work to live. Yeah, perfect. Well, Peter, just before we go, it sounds like you've got the, the dream job. Would you call it your dream job? Uh, yeah, uh, my, my dream job would probably be uh, commentating the European Cup final. That would be great. <laughs> it does sound the way that you've sort of built it up as if you've managed to go from journalism into the radio, into Bundentry. It does look as though you've been very focused on what you wanted to achieve. Yeah, there are a few disappointments um, along the way. I'll be perfectly honest with you. Things that I would like to have achieved that sometimes through life and twists and turns you don't you don't get there but you, you just keep striving you just keep trying to build something I mean if anybody had said to me after Sky Sports and working for Talk Sport that I'd suddenly be you know back in Scotland um, starting my own company then I would have been gobsmacked but you know eight years on roughly by my side I've started my own you know we started 
uh, doing a, a radio program, but I also started my own company, which has its own media news outlet. You know, we cover Scottish, English and world football. We have unique video content. We've got our own app and it's all a news service. So I've got a news website um, for sport and I've got, you know, unique video content and football programs. So that for me has been a hard, hard learning curve. But fortunately, because I managed to load the bases, I was able to, I was able to actually build something and bring people on. So listen, the one element of it that's the key to this, it could all end tomorrow. If anything, COVID has uh, given us all a lesson that better business people than me, better operators than me have lost their jobs. So there, but for the grace of God, I am trying. Can I survive? Can I build something special? Who knows? But you, you need to have that ability not to give up. And that's the best message I could give any youngster. Just because someone doesn't think you're their cup of tea, it's not the end. You've got to have the hunger. It's always great to see, you know, Scottish people succeeding, Peter. It's it's fabulous to see you achieving that. But obviously, you know, you've talked about your mum telling you to load the bases. I still think she only wanted you to back to get the three papers that she lost it. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. There's obviously she was... people along the way that have inspired you. Can you just give us some examples of who's inspired you in your career? Well, I, I, one of the people that's inspired me over a long period of time was Tommy Burns because he was a good pal. He was one of those guys. I am very fortunate that because I host a number of events, I go out as an after-dinner speaker as the host. Because I came from a huge family, my style is slightly different from everybody else, whereas a host normally says hello, good evening and welcome. My style is hello, and then I absolutely machine gun the audience and take the mickey out of them. Um, and Tam and I get on great together because that's where we obviously forged our friendship and I would be the journalist asking him questions. And I'll never forget, Celtic had been battered eight times by Rangers and I went in there, you know, to interview him for STV and I, and I said to him, you know, Tam, do you not think maybe you should change the tactics now and maybe try and just play a more defensive game to you're dominating games against Rangers but they're still winning the game and Tam with a glint in his eye looked at me and he went hey you know about tactics and he <laughs> slaughtered me you know and at the end of it I thought oh, right you know here's me trying to tell Tam Burns about tactics but Tam was a great inspiration to me I absolutely I absolutely adored him he's greatly missed so he was a great inspiration to me um, a- along the way and I've had you know people in, in personal life who, who give you that never say die attitude that have inspired me teachers one of them my old English teacher who who was absolutely magnificent who who emphasized the need for me to you know to be able to try like uh, I said like my mother as well to to work as hard as you possibly can and make sure you you know, you prepare for everything. Just when you were talking about Tommy Burns there, Peter, my nephew had the privilege at uh, maybe about 10 years ago, he uh, worked as a, a youth coach at Celtic and he said he used to go along at 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock and 9 o'clock at night for the different age groups and he said out the corner of his eye he always saw this guy with a, a hood up and he never realised who it was. He said that he was always there and it was just like one of the parents standing at the side and he went over one night and went, can I help you? And it was uh, Tommy Burns and he said yeah. he was just absolutely passionate about football. Oh, I love things. I mean, the great thing about him, and this is one of the things that I will never forget, is he'd phone me up and he'd go, hey, get your team down here. Um, I've finished the training at Barrafield. Get the boys down, we'll get an 11 aside. And I kid you not, I turned up one night with a whole raft of mates and we turned up and it was near enough the 1988 Celtic centenary side he had assembled to play as at Barrafield. And I, I played football with him regularly. We played in charity matches, legends matches, the lot. He was magnificent 
and when I was getting married, um, I phoned him up and I said, look, I'm having a stag night. And Tam, in his own inimitable fashion, said, no, you're not. We're having a stag game. And I was like, what? <laughs> and he says, we'll have a stag game. He says, let's organise an 11 aside against your mates from Edinburgh and we'll come through. We'll go through there with a team. So I kid you not, I have a photograph that I'll never, ever, ever um, let go of is me, Jim McAnally, Billy Stark, Tommy Burns, uh, and we are all there in our strips playing against this select from Edinburgh for my stag night. Tommy Tommy took over my stag night and we played eleven of sides. It was it was it was unbelievable. It'll live with me forever. Who get the tactics right, Peter? Oh, listen, can I tell you something? I actually think I am the number 10. But Tam, when you turn up and you've got Tam and Billy start there, if they say you're playing left back, you're playing left back. Uh, Peter, you you know, both Stuart and I, we, we've talked to you that we're setting up I was going as a charity. We want to thank you, you know, for coming along. We're conscious that, you know, we're aware that you also do your own charitable works at Margaret's Hospital, Joe Ray Simpson, the red car. Why, why have you picked those charity specifically? Well, the first one um, is um, I got a call from Hugh Keevens one night and I didn't really do after dinner speaking at all. Um, it's a market which people go out and they, they, they speak and tell jokes. So Hugh phoned me up and he said, listen, can you do a gig for me, please? And I said, oh, I said, he says, I said, what do you want me to do? He says, I want you to host it. I said, oh, I don't really like going out to all these dinners, Hugh, the hobnobbers and the black ties and all that. So it's not really for me. And he said, please, please do me a favour. Will you do me a turn? So I said to him, okay. And he said, I said, where is it? He said, it's St. Margaret of Scotland Hospice. And I said, you want me to speak to nuns and priests? Are you kidding me? I said, oh, my type of humour. I said, this is going to be a nightmare, you know. So I turned up St. Margaret of Scotland Hospice. I met a lady that will be known to many people out in the circuit, Sister Rita who uh, takes care of St. Margaret of Scotland Hospice. And I have to tell you, I leathered everybody in the crowd um, with with not one sweary word at all. But I had a great noise up with them. And Sister Rita just wouldn't let me leave. Um, so she they got me for all the functions. Eventually, she had the entire St. Margaret of Scotland Hospice praying for us so that we could have a child. We got my daughter baptised in St. Margaret of Scotland Hospice and we never left them. And, and it's been a joy because, you know, should we need hospices to try and raise millions of pounds just to stay open for care that we should, you know, that we take, we, we should take it for granted at any level, but they have to, they have to show a guiding light without the funding that they deserve. The NHS is a brilliant place, does a great job, and I, I can't speak highly enough of them, but hospices as well do a fantastic job. So that's why it's dear to my heart. Show racism, the red card, is so close to me for the reasons that quite simply I've suffered a lot of sectarian abuse. I rise above it. I don't make an issue of trying to bleat on about it every day. I just think that the best way to actually counter it is to try and educate, is to try and put across a positive message. Um, I um, attended a school where not one day did I get into that school and any teacher taught me hatred of anyone. Um, You have to be able to tolerate. You have to be able to understand people. You have to be able to accept that someone has a different upbringing from you and you can't be abusive towards them and that's the message that show racism uh, you know tries to educate people whether it be race creed or color you know we need to change sadly uh, you know i i think we're going backwards and i think there is a, a greater need to continue the fight to continue the education 
you know, we're in a situation right now where black and ethnic minorities are still battling for equality, are still looking for the same opportunities that some people take for granted. And I speak from a position over the last 50 years of knowledge of it. Being a Catholic in the west of Scotland was not the easiest place to try and forge out a career in lots of different areas. So that's why I think there's a need to to highlight, you know, the the imbalance in society. I think it's very unfair. So that's why the show racism, the red card is so uh, close to me as well. Peter, on that, I think that's a great way just to say thanks very much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure, uh, not only speaking to you, but the uh, responses that you've given us to the questions have been fantastic. Your humility and the, the, the fact of what you've just discussed there about the charitable stuff is just fantastic. So, Peter, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Well, I, I want to thank both of you for inviting me on and, and having a chat with you. It's the first uh, time I've ever been on here and haven't leathered the guests. Uh, so, so, <laughs> so gone, it's, appreciate it's, that. So un, it's so unusual for me, you know. I, I, I either pick a fight or pick up on something you've said wrong, but you two have been an absolute dream. You, you know you'll never get a, you'll never get a job in the industry if you don't start picking fights. It's been great. Thank you. I thought you'd started on that when you said it sounds as though we were just down at the pub talking. I thought, all right, so we're not that good. (laughs) No, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much for that, Peter.